0: From The Travel Show, I'm your host, Pauline Fromer, and we've got a bit of a theme on today's show. We're going to be talking about luxury travel, both how that word is misused to get people to spend more than they should for what can often be a mediocre product, and also how creating luxury activities is destroying a, a beloved way of life in ski towns around the world. And that may seem like an overstatement, but listen to the entire second interview that I do. And I'll, I, I think you'll see how eloquently uh, the author I speak to, Roger Moralt, uh, makes that point. Before we get to luxury, though, I do need to talk about two very disturbing recent developments in travel. At the very beginning of this week, American Airlines announced it would be raising its rates for checking luggage. Have their expenses for checking luggage gone up? I very much doubt it. But of course, this set off an avalanche and now JetBlue is also going to be raising its rates on luggage. And my guess is that's just the beginning. Uh, we will see this across the industry, because usually when one of the airlines makes this type of move, they all follow. But this is less disturbing than the other announcement that American Airlines made. It said, and it didn't give many details, but it said that it was going to be punishing those travelers that booked through third-party sites by not allowing them to get loyalty points for the flights booked through those third-party sites they haven't yet detailed which third-party sites this is going to apply to but if this becomes a thing suddenly the travel search engines that have become standard uh, in many travelers toolkits may become obsolete because you know you're not going to want to if you're a points gatherer and many people are and we could talk for a, a whole hour on whether or not that's a good idea. I mean, I know a lot of people who do travel for free using those points. I know others who say that it's a pyramid scheme and that there are just too many points out there floating in the universe for everybody to get the benefit of them. So, you I, I can't really go into that today, but if all of the airlines follow Americans' lead, and that could happen, that's, that's happened in the past. If that happens and it becomes impossible to get loyalty points on Expedia, Orbits, Travelocity, Priceline, etc., that's going to reshape the industry in ways that could be bad for the consumer because those sites allow you to easily compare one airline to the next. And if the financial underpinning of what they're doing disappears, they could disappear. And then it'll become much harder for travelers to find the the lowest prices. Now, that's apocalyptic. Uh, I'm hoping it doesn't go that far or it doesn't go that far that fast. But we will see. This has been a very, very interesting week in travel. All right, let's get to our first guest. Nobody likes to feel like they've been suckered or conned when they buy a travel product, but that's happening more and more to those who are looking for luxury goods in the travel space. My next guest is Amy Tara She wrote a terrific article in The Telegraph. It's called, How Luxury Lost Its Meaning. Hey, Amy, thank you so much for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so tell us, what happened to you? When did you realize you had been suckered into buying the wrong product?
1: Well, it has happened many times, unfortunately, which is why in the story I say even seasoned reporters get duped. <laughs> um, but most recently, I was with my family on the Greek island of Paros. And it's interesting because I am a reporter, so I don't just look at things online and say, hey, yeah, great, I'm going to do it. I checked the uh, a villa that I was renting, and I checked it with um, a, a Greek friend who runs multiple restaurants in Athens. And these villas were connected with a supposed five-star hotel in Paros. So I felt reasonably confident that it was going to be nice. But we checked in, and it was just like ants everywhere. Just yeah. none of those touches to make it special. And the bathroom steamed up really quickly. It kind of had a little bit of a sulfury smell. And it just was like, you know, as we like to say, it was meh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, and I was just, we were spending seven days there and I didn't want to be super negative. So I drank a lot of that glorious Greek wine, <laughs> stared at the view and just said, next time FaceTiming with the manager before I do anything.
0: <laughs> well, and it it gave birth to a very useful article because you make the point in it that there is no global standard or rating system that actually shows that something is luxurious if it's listed as luxury right there are There are certain entities that purport to do this type of of rating but but it's kind of b s right
1: yeah, unfortunately, I mean, everyone I'm sure could relate when they're looking, even when you're going in your Uber or you're walking around, you see things, luxury condo rental, luxury water, luxury dog food. And, and um, you know, the term is just tossed around very loosely. And what I say in the article is when you purchase a Dior bag or a Rolex watch, for example, you know what you're in for because the brands have represented high quality for decades. But luxury travel doesn't come with any kind of authenticity. There are various star systems and there are ratings companies that that writers go to for data points, but they are really using, for their research, they're using room rates, not right. quality. So it's yeah. a very different thing.
0: Well, I write Fromer's New York City, and because prices here are so cuckoo crazy, yeah, there are hotel rooms that cost nine hundred dollars a night in high season. That in low season are one twenty nine a night, and should be one twenty nine a night. That's that's the level these rooms are at. So looking at the price is, I have always thought is meaningless.
1: But yes, it, price is not so much indicative. And I think a, a big part of uh, in in travel, a big part of it has to do with these point systems. Huh. I feel like Marriott, and that's what I say in the story. I'm sure I've been blackballed by Marriott at this point, but um, <laughs> but <laughs> they just they they've bought up they've bought up a lot of hotels that were independent huh. and really glorious in their heyday. Put the uh, Marriott stamp on it, and Marriott doesn't own hotels; they manage all the hotels. Sure, they're, they're owned by different entities. But but the point system has it so that if you have people who are traveling for business and have X amount of points, they they just want to fill their rooms every single night. They're more concerned with, with filling their rooms than the little details, like having that special. I was at the auberge, Blue a lodge at Blue Sky uh, in Park City a few weeks ago, and they had like a local CBD product in the room one night. And then the next night there was whiskey from a local distiller, and all these little touches were so wonderful. Not to mention the million count thread sheets, sure, and the lovely service, and all of that. So there's a huge difference between a true luxury
0: property and one that is masquerading. Well, you 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 talk about that difference, and I I talked with a trend expert. I, I met him because he started out when he was younger. He worked for Fromers, which is interesting that his life has led him this way. And he told me the big Two big trends in travel right now are high touch versus mechanized. So if you are going to a standard hotel, they're going to say, oh, isn't it great? You can check in on your phone and you will never see a human being at that hotel. But when it comes to actual luxury, things are actually good for the traveler. There's many more touches being added, like hotels, where there's a concierge on every damn floor. And so, you you know, if everything is on your phone, that's probably a clue that it's going to be a very mainstream experience.
1: Absolutely, Pauline. He is so right because real luxury properties want those touch points. They look for touch points all of the time. They want the concierge to, um, they want more than one concierge to be there. A lot of them actually at uh, Rocco Forte's Browns Hotel in London, which I love, the the um the doormen have earpieces and there's actually a camera and they'll say, hello, Miss Koch, and I'll be like so excited. They might have remembered my name. Of course they didn't remember my name, but
0: it still feels good that they used my name. So um Wait, wait, what what are the cam what are the earpieces telling them? Is there somebody who's just sitting at the camera yes. all day? Yes. Holy moly. That's yeah, like the yeah. devil wears Prada. Kind, uh, of, where, kind Yeah, of, where she whispers in her
1: ear. Yeah, and it's, it's just like another touch point, a way to make your guest feel like the service is personalized. And back to what you were saying about the touch points. I think that, um, you know, I've, we, you and I have talked about this because I've written about smart tech. And I, the, I, I think smart tech is dumb. <laughs> and, and the reason is, it's just it's just like, a, it's like an, an easy out for these hotels to not have staff. Okay, check in on the app. Okay, go right to your room. Isn't it cool that there's no personnel in the lobby? And so I think like slick technology has become a substitute for luxury in a lot of ways. And but those real luxurious hotels, the Carlisle in New York, Browns in London, the Beverly Hills Hotel in L.A., um, La Reserve in Paris, all of those are almost anti-technology in the sense that they're gonna give you old school menus that feel, you know, substantial and reflect their brand. And right. they want as many people to be in touch with you to make you feel special.
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, it's the human touch, as you say. So beyond going to your Fromer's Guide, of course, yes. how does how does somebody know the difference between a true luxury resort and something where you're just wasting your money?
1: Well, I mean, I don't think personally, I don't think that you can trust uh, things like Yelp. And I don't mean to point my finger specifically specifically nope. at them, but I, I think you really have to check. You have to check photos. You have to check social media. You have to get word of mouth. Um, I think there are some chains that I do really trust and I really like. I really like Peninsula, Oberge, Mandarin Oriental, Rocco Forte, Rosewood, and Belmont. I think those are really, really reliable. But I think that um, it's interesting. I, in the UK, there is a system that's accredited by the Automobile Association, which has got a hotel recognition scheme with criteria breakdown. And in the EU, they have something called Hotel Stars. Um, here in the United States, a lot of people rely upon AAA guides like fromers of course and oh. um
0: uh, and then word well, of so, mouth yeah you know i mean it's I, obviously my life is is looking at these ratings and and trying to describe hotels and restaurants and the like and and sometimes even those ratings can be off like in the uk have you ever gone into a hotel and noticed there's like a dusty line of bottles against one wall that's because they get an additional star from the government if they have a bar. So they may not actually have a bar, but because they have those bottles publicly, they get another uh, star in their governmental ratings. Are you kidding? I did not
1: know that. I'm going
0: to be on the lookout for that. That is crazy. Yeah. So that's crazy. And with Yelp and with TripAdvisor and even on social media, I find Um, sometimes people who think they're describing luxury aren't describing it. They don't know the difference. I'm on a group called Girls Love Travel. It has a million people. And I I write, as I said before, the, the New York City guidebook. People will often say, I'm going to New York, where should I dine? And they will say, oh my God, the... Uh, olive Garden in Times Square is the best Olive Garden on the planet, and I'm thinking, oh, please don't go to the Olive Garden. Why are you giving them that advice? Uh, so, so it's it's a hard thing to suss out. It really is, and it's like you don't know what you don't know, right?
1: Right. So if somebody if somebody goes to I don't know if they go to I'm trying to think uh, Deer Valley. I'm not Deer Valley. Let me think of so I was just thinking about the St. Regis. The St. Regis was created by John Jacob Astor. He would probably roll over in his grave if he saw what Marriott has done. And they still implement his sabering of a champagne bottle every night as if like he used to do this ritual, as if it makes any sense in the smart tech, overly beige environments of the St. Regis these days. Um, But if you go to the St. Regis and you've never stayed at some of these other independently owned or smaller chain hotels, you don't know the difference, really. Just like if the Olive Garden may look very, you know, alluring to you, but you haven't been to um, Il Molino (laughs) and you just don't really you just don't really know the difference. Um, But I'm also, you know, I'm a big advocate for staying away from chains and finding that special that special place in terms of dining you know, that's independently owned, has been there for generations. Same thing with hotels. But I was going to say also, when you were talking about Yelp and all of these other things, there's so much pay for play going on.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Half, half of the reviews are paid advertising. It's disguised marketing. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe more than half.
1: And even, you know, and even I remember in my early days as a reporter, I used to reference or look at um, the Five Star Alliance. And it's really a booking site. You know, the five star alliance is just another it's just another promotional kind of booking site where you one might go to look for wonderful five stars and you would you'd plug in the country or the state. Right. But a lot of them, you know, they they've been paid by the brand. Sure. So it's not it's not really
0: um telling. It doesn't really say anything. Yeah. No, you know, it's I mean you just don't want to be taken. I mean, me personally, I I look at hotels and I think I'm unconscious for 80% of the time that I'm there. So as long as it's cheap and well-located, that's luxurious enough for me. But if I was to pay a huge amount of money and, and, and stay somewhere that, that really wasn't worth that money, I, I'd be pissed. So I think your article was extraordinarily valuable.
1: Well, it's funny. I have a different opinion from you. I, think, <laughs> I love my. I have the nicest apartment, and I think I do not want to stay anywhere that's not as nice or nicer than my apartment. Huh. And so I'm looking for those. I'm, but also that's I write about that. Um, and not everywhere has to be supremely expensive, and doesn't have to have the most expensive sheets or china or all of that. But I am looking for for special touches. I want housekeeping to come. I mean, I've gone to lately, like I've been at Ritz's and the housekeeping just doesn't show up. Right. And it's, and supposedly that's okay.
0: And it also means somebody's out of work. You know, it means that there aren't people, there are people who aren't working who could have had those jobs, which is heartbreaking.
1: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, I, the feeling of getting duped in any situation is, is really bad. You know, you really, you've got to do your research. You've got to ask friends. That's where social media, like from your friends circle is actually really great. Yes, if you know them, yeah. Yes, like I get requests, you know, from people on on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and uh, people that are looking for recommendations. And I also think really looking at reputable sources like the Telegraph, like the New York Times, like the Wall Street Journal, like Washington Post, Conde Nast Traveler, all of those, like looking up those reviews, for me, those, those are
0: authentic. Those
1: are yeah. legitimate sources for um, as a reference point.
0: Yeah, no, most definitely. Well, thank you so much, Amy. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. I have Roger Merrelt on the line. He wrote an excellent article for Outside Magazine called, Should Wealthy Skiers Get to Buy Access to Powder Before the Lifts? open. Hey, Roger, thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So what the article is about is in the title, but I, let me ask you first, how did you discover this new, and I find disturbing trend in ski vacations?
2: Well, th- there, there has been a program in Aspen, my hometown, for many years, and it's a they open the lifts for an hour before the regular guests and 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 public can get on the lifts and it started out ski instructors would take their classes up there while the ski instructors were working on their technique for certification purposes and they said why don't we just open it up as kind of a gimme to to anybody who wants to get up early and sure. go try it out so it was free it was free to anybody who wanted to get up early and then covid hit and they turned it into an exclusive program that is available only to Aspen Mountain Club members and private ski lessons and uh, guests at Aspen Ski Company Hotels. So it leaves the regular traveler and the locals out of the picture for, for getting uh, first tracks. And it, it's taking away something from from the regular visitor and the locals, which I think is, is important to note.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I'm not a skier. So tell me, why is it so appealing to be the first person on the mountain?
2: Well, it's it's appealing for, for two types of snow today. We have excellent grooming. Modern technology with grooming equipment has made really perfect, smooth, soft snow on almost every intermediate run on the mountain available. And people really love that. And it's easy to ski. It's easy on the body. It's as, as as skiers age, it's just a delightful way to start the day. And then there, there's also the powder morning, which is really incredible. And it's just a, tr- a, a a tradition since the beginning of skiing to try to get first tracks on fresh powder snow. It is a valuable commodity, and it's hard to do, and, and it takes know-how. You've got to get up early. You've got to go to the right spots. And um, so so that's what we're talking about here. That's what's at stake. And powder so, snow degrades really quickly in sun, and wind, and especially when it gets tracked up. So it doesn't right. last very long in the morning. So if they open the lifts early and allow skiers to get those first tracks, there's just not as much great skiing left for, for the, the general public.
0: Well, I got to ask, is this also a climate change issue? Uh, does this have to do with the fact that a lot of ski resorts now have to make a
2: lot of snow and that might be different snow? Than yeah, they, that's that's the a rate. good point, the, and and ski resorts do have to make a lot more snow than they used to, and that snow is great. It covers the rocks, it covers the grass and hay and stumps, but it's it's a lower quality snow. It's usually harder, and um, it, it it's it's great to have it, and and especially sure. in this in the in with climate change, yeah. And they do groom it, like I said, in the morning, so that it's soft and really nice skiing. But it quickly turns hard again during the day and it's it's just not it's not as good as powder or or fresh corduroy snow is right. what we call that that groove and snow. what
0: was pretty shocking about your article was not the fact that this is happening cuz you know maybe if it was like a $5 fee or a $10 fee on top of the normal lift ticket I think people could stomach that but the amounts being charged for this privilege of skiing early I thought were pretty shocking
2: yeah well for example in aspen the initiation fee to the Aspen Mountain Club is two hundred seventy five thousand dollars, and and hope <laughs> yeah it's crazy, and and hotel rooms at the Little Nell, which would allow you access to this program. They during high season they can run thirty five hundred to four thousand dollars a night, and a private lesson, which also allows you access, is is a th- over a thousand dollars a day. And, and Aspen see. Ski Company announced this year they have a special program through its Aspen X branding marketing program, uh-huh. uh, a Highlands Bowl experience, they call it. And Highland Bowl in Aspen is the ultimate on a powder day. You have to hike about a half an hour to get up to the top of it. But now, they through this program, they allow people for $2,500 per person to go up there with a guide an hour before it opens and get first dibs on that incredible snow and so that's that's a tough one to swallow and highland bowl is a big wide open space that it's very visible from from aspen mountain highlands and when you see tracks in that it's it's a special thing and to go up there and climb up there and see tracks before the average skier can get up there it's it's a little disheartening it's an aesthetic thing but um and
0: it's it's beyond aspen right i mean this is happening now throughout the industry
2: yeah, that's where the story kind of started. I, You know, I, I originally thought this was sort of just an Aspen thing because Aspen's over the top and everything. But as I traveled around, we went to Niseko, Japan last year, and we, and we explored Lake Tahoe, and we went down to Taos, New Mexico. And these programs are springing up everywhere. And my sense was that the local crowds kind of get riled up about it. Yeah. But everybody's got their own area, and that's what they pay attention to. So I don't think everybody... I think people were more like me they didn't realize like this is a this is a, a thing in the entire ski industry and so it's bigger than just the local areas and and it's going everywhere and it's profitable and I th- yeah. and I think we're just at the beginning of seeing more and more oh, of this
0: Oh boy well you know yeah I think you're right about just being at the beginning what we're seeing throughout the travel industry I think is A lot of companies lost a lot of money during the pandemic, and so they are coming up with more and more creative ways to nickel and dime travelers, uh, some of which are putting certain travel experiences like this totally out of reach, and to me, it's heartbreaking.
2: It it is heartbreaking, And, and I'll even mention that I think it goes way beyond just the skiing experience. I think these programs are a threat to the ski culture in the greatest ski towns in this country in the world. And, you know, you think about skiing, skiing's a wonderful thing, but you go skiing and you ski for two or four or maybe seven hours if you're really into it. And the rest of the time, I think you're there to experience the ski culture. And, you know, just growing up in Aspen, the ski culture was fantastic. It has been fantastic. And COVID can, came, you, can
0: you uh, expand on what you mean by ski culture?
2: Well, ski culture would be, um, you know, walking around town and going to the bars and restaurants. And uh-huh. and you meet the local people, the ski bums right. who live there. They're skiing every day and they've got their stories. And, and it's just, it's a pretty cool thing. And I think people who visit those places, and I know this experience from from being a wannabe surfer. I'm not a surfer, <laughs> but I love going to beach towns. And, and you know kind of hanging out at the beach watching the surfers seeing where they're hanging out after they surf and whatnot and i think and the and the same thing goes on in ski towns and i think people used to really love that and and they'd like to you know sort of assimilate that ski culture and and free themselves from the regular world and their business lives and they'd come and they just they they'd be a an aspirational ski bum and 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 that's a really special thing in these ski towns yeah. and and the pandemic you know it it um real estate prices went sky high in the pandemic and it pushes a lot of the locals out. And, and so there's shortages for, for all the service industries, restaurants, hotels, and whatnot. And the prices for all those services are going up while the actual quality of the service is going down. So guests are getting a little chippy about that, that that they're paying more for getting less. And, 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 and that erodes the, the, that, that ski town character that I'm talking about enough. But now we start doing these special programs, and that's just sort of like one more kick in the teeth to the local working crowd that is traditionally considered that one of the great perks of living in a ski town. And so it's just a combination of these things. It's just eroding that wonderful feel of these ski towns that everybody really sought out. And and so I think...
0: Am I right? Did a lot of the locals get up and ski before others did, and then go to work? So is that how they would, you know? Oh, put absolutely, into absolutely. Day?
2: That yeah. was just a little bit of the ski, the ski bum know how, and <laughs> and it was such a wonderful thing. And there was there's a thing in ski towns. It's been traditionally called the six inch rule. If if it snows six inches, businesses open late, and nobody wonders why. And if if you don't show up for work at at eight. Like a normal day, your employer understands they're probably up there skiing too. Wow. So yes, that was that. It's it's a great local tradition, the Powder Day, and yeah. the energy is magnificent. And it and it may sound like a small thing to a non skier, but it's actually an an incredible part yeah. of the community feel in these ski towns. And and we're losing that. And and you mentioned even if it was ten dollars a day or twenty dollars a day for the local skier. That's a lot. It may not. Yeah, seem, that would add up. Yeah, yeah, it would add up, and it's just another hoop you have to jump through to go skiing, and and you know, so so that's not a lot for for most travelers to ski towns, but for the local sure. working person, it can add up, and it just is another barrier that they have yeah. to cross to to enjoy that.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing this to light. I thought it was a wonderful article. I love outside. I'm always happy to see. They, they break a lot of news in the industry, so many congratulations on being there. And thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show.
2: Oh, it's been a pleasure.
0: And that is it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll See you next week.